Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And this week, it is a pleasure to welcome uh, a woman that I jokingly call my boss bay. She is just a light into this world. She is a awesome, awesome leader and a great woman and someone who you know lights up the room of every room she's in. And our topic today is culture of belonging, which is a really fascinating topic. I know in some areas it might be um, politicized, but the goal is just as Tia says within this conversation is to help uh, build stronger, authentic relationships and have the adults and kids fully be themselves and bring their best selves to get the best work done they can possibly do. The conversation is really rich. I did not know, I know a lot about Tia, I did not know that she has a early childhood background. And so we dove into how that early childhood background helps her become a better teacher and administrator at the elementary, middle, and high school levels. Um, Tia is a managing director our managing coach director for us and uh, oversees a lot of our work with districts and schools across the southeast and east coast i guess in northeast as well she is um just a dino in the conversation again you'll see that we're very comfortable with each other conversation dives into the work of culture of belonging but also uh, it's thinking about what is the difference between building positive relationships and authentic relationships that move the needle in a very powerful way so I love the conversation. T is very easy to talk to. You'll see that really quickly. And uh, I just really appreciate the the topic and appreciate her bringing her whole self. So I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. If uh, you're a subscriber, thank you for subscribing. If you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. And again, as always, most importantly, if you hear anything Tia says that you think would be a light to others, please share this podcast with them so they can hear Tia's brilliance. Enjoy this episode. All right. As I stated in the intro, I am really excited to have my dear, dear friend, Tia McIntosh Major here. So Tia, thank you for making time for being with us today. I'm so excited to talk to you. I am very, very glad to be here with you today, Dustin. Thanks. Yeah. So first question is, you know, because we talk about it often, who are you and what do you love about what you do? Yeah. Who am I? I am truly, truly a, a lifelong educator who is committed and passionate and does love the work that we get to do. What do I love about what I get to do? Impact lives and education. Since I've been moved into this role as a, a leader and me coach, really, really being able to be at the service of schools, teachers, districts, and communities in so many locations is, is an honor for real. Have you always wanted to be an educator? I know we joke a lot about your Jersey upbringing. And given that I grew up in basically Georgia, North Florida, which is basically Georgia, uh, it's a whole different world and universe from where I grew up. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into education. And you know, I, I'm, I'm curious. And what I love about your journey is I believe you had unique stops at every level of the K-12 journey at elementary school, middle school, and high school, which I think really gives you a lot of color to your experience as well as your ability to coach all different types of folks. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into education. All right, Dustin, it's hard it's hard to talk about myself. I will I will tell you what comes best to me. Um how did I get in education? So both of my parents were educators. Um my mom went then into central office administration. My dad was actually uh, a union president and a teacher in the Camden City School District in New Jersey, a place that I have grown to love. That being said, I did not think that I was gonna be an educator at all. I went to college uh, with the interest in becoming a physical therapist. I used to volunteer 
at nursing homes a lot in high school. And I just really wanted to get in helping people in that kind of way. Um, and first semester freshman year happened <laughs> and I took chemistry, bio and calculus all at the same time and immediately realized that the class I liked the most was my English class <laughs> and that I was no longer going to stay that path. And so I quickly changed my major from biology with a physical therapy interest to English education. And even then, um, I graduated with an English major, didn't think I would teach, really wanted to get into journalism and things like that. That also didn't happen. And I, so I kind of non-traditionally started teaching uh, pre-K almost straight out of college and then got certified as a teacher. And all of the things you said are interesting because, yeah, I started my career as a pre-K teacher teaching pre-K three and four years old. And before working with Franklin Covey, one of the last things I did was be an administrator at a junior senior high school. And so it's been great to work at all the grade levels, learn all of the differences. I worked at the district central office for a year as well um, as an administrator there. And just, I, there's never, I said it to somebody recently, there's never been a moment in my adult life and my teenage years where I did not love uh, the role that I was in, in my employment. And so that has been a blessing. So I'm curious, uh, just as an educator, I know there's a, a, a unique type of training and understanding of kids' development or childhood development that you need for early childhood that's different than elementary and secondary. What did that experience do for you? Like how 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 beneficial and what was beneficial about that early childhood learning uh, development that you had early on to make you a better leader teacher of kids who are much older? the foundations because what you learn is all of the very clear foundations that need to be set in place and when you're teaching at that young of a level there's absolutely academics oh i just made a connection in my mind so i'll say it in a second there's absolutely the academics that we're teaching but you're really teaching those little people how to be people and when you really think about it we're always supposed to be teaching our youth how to be people in society. And, and that's the work we do right now. Mm. So you've noticed uh, when you're teaching at a high school level or when you're administrator at a high school level, because you had the early childhood lens, you felt more effective in terms of engaging with kids and helping move kids. Certainly. You, you just remember how to connect. You just remember they're the same. They're really not that different. The older students still want the attention and the affection just as the younger students did. And, and that never quite changes. They never quite get out of it. Yeah, but that's that's really powerful to have and because I, I feel like, you know, even early on in my teaching career, teaching in high school, you know, the, it's easy to get a paradigm of like my kids, my students in front of me need to be fully developed right now. We need to take this seriously. And you having the lens of early childhood coming in thinking, they're all still babies trying to figure out this world. I'm going to dive into them helps create a level of empathy that I think uh, would help you move your kids academically further than most people because you see them in the right kind of light, I would say. Yeah, thank you. You said that. And then I immediately thought, aren't we all just still trying to figure this thing out? <laughs> <laughs> we we are. We are. Um, so you were in Camden I, before we move on to that. You know, I, I think when folks hear about Camden or, you know, where I used to work in St. Louis, there's, there's generally some stereotypes that go along with it. Can you help um, share with people who've never been to Camden? 
what Camden is about and what what powerful things have, have been happening there that they may not know about? It's the people. It's the people. I mean, some of the most beautiful people you would meet are in communities like Camden because they have to be strong. They have to be resilient. They just have to be great and, and come together. Yeah. Are there challenges? Absolutely. I get it. But the whole notion of like the you work in Camden. Oh, I'm sorry. is ridiculous because really yes. and truly it is the most rewarding thing that I that that a person could do it, it, It's the people. They are beautiful. Yeah, it's funny you say that, you know, even in St. Louis, sometimes you're like, oh, you you worked with the city schools. Oh, man, I'm thinking I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. My kids are the most amazing kids ever. You know, teachers are teachers everywhere. So you're going to have adult issues everywhere. And what I like being is in that fight to, um, you know, build futures with the kids and the, and the staff there. And so, you know, you've got a chance to be in it for quite a quite a bit of time. And so I assume you've got a lot of hope about where Camden can go, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can't you can't be there and not have hope. It just will take everybody's commitment to it. And I think that's the part that's the part that la that's lacking. The people even outside of the city commitment to helping change. All right. So tell me after all of that, what led you to Franklin Covey education? What was it about this opportunity um, that really spoke to your heart and your purpose? Yeah, I was really interested in just um using my skill sets in a different way. I love professional learning. I love educating adults. And so part of the allure was that for me. But then the more I'm not from, like you said, um, I came from New Jersey. I now am in Georgia and started working in Franklin Covey here. And I am not from a background in leader in me school. Um, I just love leadership and love working uh, with adults. And so I, I, think as the art interview process can be pretty rigorous from internally, we joke about it a lot. But the thing that happens during it is that one is you start reading all of the books, you're learning everything. And every single time you meet a new group of people that are interviewing you over that span of time, you get more and more uh, intensely committed to getting into the role because you know, those are the people that I want to be on a mission with. And, and that is really what drives me even today. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I mean, I think you know, I've been here 12 years now and the interview process hasn't got much shorter. But what I appreciate about it is that we don't aim to have a lot of turnover as an organization. We want people to to be with us for a long time. And so part of the benefit of going through a long interview process and meeting a lot of folks are you're getting a chance as the interviewee to decide if you want, like, if this is the right fit for you. And then once you get here, you've developed probably, you know, five to 10 friends that you wouldn't have had otherwise before you started. And so um, it's funny that you also had that experience. And I know people that you're hiring, you're having that experience now. So hopefully they recognize as they get here, you know, it's somewhere that they can be for a long time with you, right? Yeah, for sure. My leader, um, Shelly, often says, uh, like, we're not interviewing you. That's not the only thing happening here. Candidate, you are to interviewing us. We have to be a fit for you. We have to be great. Yeah, I love that. All right. So we're here today to talk about culture of belonging. I know it's an area that you have a lot of passion about. Can you just first start by defining to you or to uh, our work? What, what does it mean to have a culture of belonging? Yeah. Simply put, having a culture of belonging is having a place where people can show up authentically as who they are and in that um, contribute their best selves. So it's really the product. Belonging is the product of the work people do to build inclusivity. Belonging is the 
product of the work people do to create a diverse experience. People can just show up, be who they really are, and perform at their best. So why is going to sound crash, but like why why is that important? I, I run into folks in education recently who have been very passionate about saying in the school, we want to focus on, you know, just the reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, the traditional, the classics, right? Why would we worry about trying to create a culture of belonging? I think it's exactly what I just said, because in a space where people belong, they really can contribute their best selves. So they speak up more, they engage more that part. They're fully engaged in that moment. Um, yep. Students, if they have a space of belonging and staff, for that matter, can just perform at the highest level. And isn't that the goal of school? Isn't that the goal yeah. of us being employed in schools and education in the first place? Yeah, one of the one of the reasons, and you and I have talked about this before, just our, our personal wise. But one of the reasons I came to Franklin Covey Education for me and leader me particularly is thinking about you know most of the schools that I worked in. If you were at the top of the list where you're getting great grades, you're in sports, you're in um, band, you're in honor roll, all those things, or you're at the bottom of the list, you're coming to us all the time or on a potential dropout list, we knew you. Well, administrators, we knew you. The middle folks, depending on how diligent you were, there's a, so many kids that fit in there that you did not know. And so when you're talking about a culture of belonging, how, how do we start going after, like when we're trying to build this, how are we going out trying to build that connection with so many kids that generally get lost through the cracks? Intentionality. There is, there's something we like to do in schools. It's like an activity around how well do you know me? Like literally pause for a second, get the students' names in front of you. What do you really, really know about each student? And how are you so intentional about if you realize you don't know something, finding it out? Yeah, yeah intentionality. So if we, you know, if uh, you know, let's say I was at my, I was just meeting with my, my old mentor for breakfast the other day, who was a former superintendent for 14 years. And we were talking through some of these challenges. So if let's say he was still there and he really wanted his schools to address a culture of belonging in every school, what are the main objectives of the training that you and your team are doing when you're coming in to help them? Yeah, the main objectives are how we use, um, I'm going to like actually like take a glance at them. So I say this just right, for you, uh, Dustin, uh, we really do want highly effective practices. I mean, that's in the word period all of the time. How do we use those highly effective practices to build a sense of inclusion and belonging? And so let me just clarify that because something resonated with me as I said it. It's not about completely brand new practices. It's about using the highly effective practices to create this sense of inclusivity in a space. Um, oh, this part is so important. Through what you just said, building authentic relationships. There is a difference between positive relationships and authentic relationships. And so us really pointing out, hey, we can push that nice relationship you have one more level into being a real relationship that promotes a sense of belonging. This is important too. High expectations. Um, one of the go-to tools we use for this, many people know about it, is the Bloomer study from back in the day where teachers were given a group of students randomly um, in the experiment, they picked like two students before they got to them or a group of students and said, hey, these students um, show 
the most potential and can grow the most, but it wasn't true. Like they didn't found it upon anything. They did not know um, what each student can do and believe it or not, truly it's easy to believe, the students that the teachers thought were going to excel before they even started teaching them did at high levels. And it was because a lot of the level of expectation they put on those students because of what they thought about them right from the beginning, yep. but it really wasn't founded on anything. So just setting the expectation differently changes the outcomes for students. And then we focus in on our brain and how do we address bias? It really takes some internal work to promote a sense of belonging in a school. Yeah. So when you're talking about earlier, the difference between positive relationships and authentic relationships, from your perspective, how do you define that? Right. Because I think even people, what I've noticed is that there can be great teachers who strongly believe they have positive relationships and they are positive because they are helping, you know, you can walk in the classroom and feel kind of a, a good vibe from it and kids are moving. But what is the difference between, you know, kind of the positive rah-rah relationships and what you're defining as authentic relationships? I think it's just in um, something you or I just said um, a moment ago. It's about the, do you really know me? A positive relationship is a nice relationship between two people where negative things don't happen. In an authentic relationship, you know me and I then can show up as exactly who I am. Yeah, I think yeah, I think about a couple of my students, um, you know, early on, because I came from a, a background of unique privilege in my own right, coming to St. Louis Public Schools and having a student that I loved and he just would not show up consistently and I could not figure out why, then eventually his best friend could tell my heart was trying to really know him and figure out how I could serve him. And he told me, well, his mom moves to a part, like basically motel to motel every couple of weeks. He has a little brother that he has to take to school. And sometimes he has to go figure out how to make money so that they can have dinner that night. And so that authentic relationship opened it up and then they got to understand it, but that's, that's hard to build. So what are some strategies that uh, you've seen help uh, when teachers are trying to build, even at the end of the school year, when people are listening to this, or as they're preparing for next school year, what are some of those key strategies that you encourage people to do to start building real authentic relationships with their kids? Yeah. Yeah. It's having those conversations. I think one strategy that just will make perfect sense to everybody is to have deeper conversations, like where you're really trying to hmm, know the students' goals, their hopes, their dreams. I mean, that could sound like cheesy to some people, but it's really true. Like that's how we build authentic relationships. Something we also know is that it's past the doors of the school. So the family, the caregivers, who are they? And do they trust you? And do you have a environment of trust build up around them? And then I think the other thing that I would say, Dustin, is around, we talk a lot in this uh, work around EBAs, emotional bank account deposits in positive relationships. They're general. We do some nice things and we make EBAs, but in authentic relationships, they are specific and directly suited to make a very clear deposit into a particular individual and that it happens regularly. That's really powerful. I think uh, just thinking about people that I work with, I'm like, man, you know, I've, when you have three young kids and life moves fast, it's easy to go on cruise control and have the positive 
you know, EBA deposits versus the the true authentic deposits. And so that's a good reminder. How much work of this is about the adults modeling it and doing it at their level before it's about kids? All of it. All of this work is inside out. All of this work takes adult, not just, I mean, modeling it, yes, but Dustin, like living it. Not just doing things, but this is who we are. This is how we engage. We make specific EVAs. Trust is not a thing that just happens naturally. Yes, it's important to extend trust naturally, but trust is something that is a skill that can be worked upon. And so how do the adults in a space work very intentionally to create a trusting space where they can uh, talk straight, be themselves, and extend that trust to other people is something you have to practice. And it does it does inside out. So I'm curious for adults and then for kids in a second, you know, one example I think about of a principal who was really trying to get this part right. And sometimes I think he was misunderstood, but I knew his heart of trying to really reach out to people. He created, cause he had a large school. He created a dashboard for himself of different types of deposits he can make with people from a text to a conversation in person, to a call, to a car, just something. And he would always try to make sure that those things were personal, but he wanted to make sure he was keeping up with his deposits because he really wanted to make sure it happened. So I was at first I was turned off because like that's too systematized. But now that I life has gotten really busy for me, he had young kids and he had a life. Uh, it makes so much more sense now. Have you seen any principals or district officials create some sort of system to help them build authentic relationships that have really that's really impressed you? Hmm. It really is in the in the system, right? So when we yep. think small, um, well, this isn't thinking small. This is thinking about where everything happens. Emotional bank account systems happen at their best within classrooms, let's say in general. Within classrooms, when students own the system for the work of emotional bank account, literally it's on this day, we're going to do this thing. It's a part of our routine. It is a system and and you just know that it's going to happen. I don't know what you just said, Dustin, um, was pretty amazing. I think that I wish everybody had those systems. In fact, um, I helped lead a team and we were just yesterday focusing in on for our Eastern uh, adult team, just that, <laughs> making a making a spreadsheet because we need to make sure that we do a thing. So while I think the schools that I'm with the most um, do have practices in place that help build EVA deposits, I think something like what you said would push it to the next level to ensure that it happens for the principal, for all adults in the building, and for the teachers in the building, that it happened for all students in the building. I'm just impressed by what you just said, to be honest. Well, I, I was impressed with him, but I think, you know, you're talking about a culture of belonging. I am most inspired to walk in schools where the adults can fully be themselves and they have systems in place to let them have off days. There was one guy, uh, Matthew Portell, who I've had on this podcast before. One of the uh, strategies that he used, I know he's probably a friend of yours as well. One of the one of the strategies that he used or he talked about it is, you know, they had a tap out. Like, let's say, you know, my kids are off the chain that day and I am about to break. We had a system within our, our, you know, his like third grade or whatever grade it was, where I could walk over, tap somebody or call somebody and they'd come in and I'd have a 10 minute break to come in. Like they had a system to maybe to help to make sure that uh, adults could get regulated as they needed so they could be better for kids. And to me, that's 
I don't want perfect schools. I don't want, I don't want my teachers or my principals showing up feeling like they have to have this fake face every day. It's okay to have bad days. I mean, they got to fight through it and they've got to bring their best self that they can bring that day. But if we have a culture of belonging that you're describing to you, I feel like that is where people want to keep coming back to and want to work hard for because they can they can ride their own life roller coaster with a group of folks who are doing it with them, right? You know what, Dustin, you just made me think about, I make a number of connections. So um, one is, is that isn't it the coolest when you're in a place where the leader is sometimes the person that you can tap when you need to yeah. step away and they just demonstrate, yeah, I'm going to take your class, you go handle it. I was just talking to one of my best friends recently around um, the importance of emotional constancy and that when adults don't have emotional constancy, that's when things just don't go right. And thinking about creating a sense of belonging, Rita Pearson um, said this, um, quite simply put, uh, students can't learn from people they don't like. And so the care for the adults just becomes so important in creating belonging. And I don't think that we all make that connection all of the time. Like me being angry or me not being able to manage or stay constant for children put them in a place where one, it it lessens the amount of belonging in the space, but it also puts them in a space where they just can't even learn to their maximum capabilities. Got it. Talk about making connections. This is why we're friends, Tia. I mean, just one, you always make me smarter and you take my brain somewhere else. But thinking back to the, where you started this conversation about the power of early childhood learning development and how that can help you be better at every level. I'm thinking about one specific student. This is you know, 15 years ago that I could never connect with. And if I were an early learning teacher... I wouldn't like I he brought his best self, I guess, but he was very ornery, tried to act up all the things. But I looked at him as a high school kid versus like a blossoming juvenile young man. I'm like, nope, not here. You got to go. And so like I didn't stop. If that was my three year old class or four year old class or five year old class, the patience I would have had with him to help figure that out would have been almost off the charts. Like, I don't know if it would have stopped it, have, uh, but at high school, for whatever reason, I felt like I'm high school. I've got to get them ready for the real world. So I've got to show them that there are consequences. And that's true. I'm not trying to get way of consequences or get, get rid of it. I just feel like when you think about culture of belonging, how do we help really know every kid? How do we know, even though, especially the ones actually that are driving you the most nuts is like, how do we get to know them and see them like the child that they are and the have the a sense of identity and, you know, they want to be known and they want to feel like they can belong. And so how do we do that for them? That was great. <laughs> Thinking about, so I'm real pro. Yes. I started out with very young children. And so that's my lens. I'm sure there are people who might engage with this and be like, nah, no, it's middle school students for me or something like that. And that is uh perfectly that's my wife. Great. You can have okay. middle school. Okay. <laughs> I come from a lens of early childhood and what you were just saying, what it brought forth in me was that our patience for young children often comes from a place that we feel like they don't have the words to give us. So we have to yep. listen so intently to really understand how they're feeling at every single moment. The issue is when they get older, well, it was not an issue. It's our issue, not theirs. Yes. They yes, still that's need that. They still need us to listen that hard. And talk about authentic relationships. We have to listen that hard 
and truly, um, you know, we love the habits, but you have to truly seek to understand, like for real, um, no matter at what age, which reflecting on that made me feel real convicted about some things I do regarding my own daughter. Um, yes. I could definitely do a few things better. And then the other connection that I'm making is how do we get to know them like that? One thing it really, really takes is that we know ourselves, that we know ourselves, that we understand ourselves, um, and that we do take that time to say, hey, and, and that's a part of this belonging too, right? Hey, why is my mind making this connection? Why is my mind having me react in, in certain ways? And, and it's just because of the way our brains have to process. But if we don't sit with ourselves and reflect on that kind of stuff, we don't, we don't improve our ability to build those relationships. So in, in any sort of training like this, right, as we're trying to build the culture of belonging, uh, another reason I came to Franklin Covey is that one of our key paradigms is you can't change anyone else. You can only change yourself. So just as you're talking, I'm I, on this podcast, I am always convicted about, God, I got to be a better team leader. I got to be a better husband. I got to be a better parent. Like every week I feel convicted by something because we're taught look in the mirror first. So when people are going and trying to build that culture of belonging, what are some of the exercises or uh, moments where they're reflecting to look in the mirror before they're trying to figure out building the relationship with the kids or the adults? Dustin, we have to identify our own biases because they're shaped by everything that has happened, because they're shaped by our past experiences, our current experiences, our context, our, our identities in general. And so we have to get to a place where we're stopping and saying, oh, wait a minute, here's how I'm impacted by everything around me, which is making me, Tia, see this event. And it's the same event we're in, Dustin, but we both look at it different ways. That's the same as what is happening in schools and classrooms. And it really is a space of um, self-reflection. I'll throw out there um, a stat that I love and I hope I have it just right, but something like it's just the way the brain works and just emphasizing that is important. We take in like 11 million, I think, pieces of information in each moment, this moment, this moment, this moment. Our yeah. brain can filter 40 of those. So what must we do? We must make, fill the gaps. Like we have to fill in the space and we do that through, oh, my past experience tells me this, or this is what I've seen before. And we might not always be completely accurate to the situation. And I think the work is in acknowledging that, knowing that it's not, there's nothing bad about it. A bias is a preference. We all have them, but it comes yep. from our natural brains trying to fill in the gaps as we move forward throughout life. We have to know well, that. I, we have to care about it. I appreciate where your head's at. I mean, I know that we won't dive into it because I know bias can be, you know, kind of a big political buzzword right now. But like you said, when I look in the mirror, like at my kids, right? Like I've got biases as an adult now when I look at them that I don't understand or if I don't slow down to recognizing that I'm point, my point of view is the adult world versus the kid world to really listen to them, then I miss the boat, right? So if our goal is to really connect, a mentor of mine told me this before I went in education and he keeps coming back to it now, which is people have two, two big needs, to be fully loved and to be fully known. And so how do you help people feel fully loved all the time, whether they deserve it or not, and be fully known? 
in a way that like they don't have shame, right? Like they can just be themselves and that that self is their best self and their worst self. They just want to be fully known. And so when I think about what you've described of, of uh, culture of belonging, though that those two truths for me are what help guide me. Am I missing anything on that? Would you add anything to that as you hear me say that? Well, one is um, I had to stop and write that down. <laughs> fully loved <laughs> and fully known. Yes, yes. Belonging is a basic need. Like we have, we have to have it um, to really make it through this life. And and all I think that I want to add to that, Dustin, is it's just let's rest in the definition. And then one particular thought: the definition is a bias is a preference for or against the thing. It's a preference. It's a preference. We don't think preference is a terrible word to use. We just have to. We all have preferences and we know it. And that's exactly what it is that we're talking about in this work that we're doing to create belonging, period. And the second is, we say it over and over again. If you have a brain, you have bias. If you have a brain, you have a preference, right, Dustin? I've got preferences, yes. You definitely (laughs) do. (laughs) And we all do. And it's because we have a brain. So when we really take to what it is we're really, really talking about. It doesn't have to be a buzzword. It's just a fact. It's just a part of who we all are. So uh, before we get to our final rapid fire questions, if someone, and you may repeat the same thing you said earlier today, uh, but if someone's asking, why should I do this? Or should I do, you know, embrace a relationship partnership with uh, Tia or Franklin Covey education coaches and consultants to have a culture of belonging or help me build a culture of belonging, what would you say to them? I would say if you want the positive desired results that you want in your school and organization, creating a sense of belonging creates a space where people function authentically and at their highest levels. And isn't that what we're all seeking? That's awesome. Uh, for those people who have never met this woman, Tia, she lights up every room that she is in. And uh, what I appreciate about you the most, Tia, is one, I mean, your presence is just known. That's why you and I laugh about it when we're we're just at a superintendent's conference together. It's just, it's just funny for a lot of reasons. But uh, you have a really cool balance of boldness, right? Where you're, you say what you mean and feel, but you have a sensitivity to really try to understand people, understand what's not being said that I just appreciate. I mean, it is a joy to work with you and engage with you, especially on the toughest stuff. I've told a few people internally recently how much I love solving tough problems with you because one, we can just say what we feel and say what we mean. And you know, we assume the best in people and try to find something, find, find a way to honor people. So th- when I think of this content, and how you've described it, I would just want to say that I think you are the perfect person for this because I think you fight to live it every day and you inspire people to live it every day. So I just thank you for bringing your head and heart to this conversation. Thank you, Dustin. Back at you from the first time we ever talked because we were had, were leaders together and forming yep. that relationship. I was like, this is great. We engage the same way. <laughs> we're we're going to be able to be our authentic selves in our partnership. So thank you. I feel the same. For, for better or worse. All right, Tia, last rapid fire questions. Let's let everybody get out of here. So first question, and don't think just, I'm not talking seven habits, but what's a habit or discipline that you utilize every day or on a regular basis to help you be the best version of yourself? It's connected to the habits, but I can't help it. And it's true. It's my mission statement is to live out, say my mission to myself 
every day, I don't mind sharing it here, is to is to give and to show up big. And so each day I have to ground myself and what am I going to do today to give and what am I going to do today to show up big? And I just try for it every single day that Dustin. I'm pretty sure I just described you as being that, just not in that such beautiful terms. So <laughs> to give and show up big. I love it because that's who you are. All right, next question. What book or books, I've, a lot of people have a tough time naming one book, so it's okay if you have to go to multiple. Have you read that just made it, you know, awesome impacts in your life that you recommend for other educators? Not because this is our subject matter, but because <laughs> it's real. And if you saw the amount of stickies in this book sitting right next to me, um, The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, I've been in multiple book studies around it. It just keeps me growing at each time. It's got to be the one. That's awesome. All right. Next one. I'm excited about this one. Uh, again, walk-up song. My nine-year-old is obsessed with baseball. My six-year-old's getting there. They love walk-up songs. We want to know what your walk-up song would be uh, if you're coming up to bat or in your case, uh, since you MC places, if you're heading to stage, what song would you choose? I think I'm going to go with, uh, oh, this feels a little basic, but I'm going to do it anyway. I think, uh, how about we go with This Girl Is On Fire, Alicia Keys. That feels a little basic. So it I'm going to try to figure out, uh, I got to figure out a way to put what I believe I know your song to be that you'll never put out there. Um, but just my, my hint to people is it is a song to get you hyped up and she just played a recent Super Bowl. So I'll let you guys figure that out on your own. Uh, last question to you before I give you your day back, because I know how busy you are. What is a piece of advice or that you've kind of come across recently, or you're around a lot of, you know, superintendents or principals. Um, and so just that you've come across, whether it's on social media or through a conversation of leadership or change advice that hit you in your heart in a way that you just have to share with others. I think it's, I have a sticky on my computer that says this, and I wasn't going to share this one, but I think it is, it is most relevant. I think it is to see things through the lens of hope, all things. Yeah. To see things through the lens of hope. That's awesome. How has that impacted your life? How long have you been trying to do that? Has that been something that has been there for a while or is that someone something that, you know, someone re reminded you of recently? It was during the beginning months of COVID when we all were trying to figure things out and we were doing a whole lot of hope work and I heard someone say that. And so it's been a few years, but doesn't it matter every day? Something challenging happens most every day. And you can get frustrated and give in <laughs> or or you can see things from the lens of hope and know that there's there's a next thing that's going to happen. Yep. Well, you definitely inspire hope. So uh, for those of you who are listening, I would encourage you to heed this woman's advice. She's someone who very much believes in a culture of belonging and someone who could help your school, or your district uh, build that if that's your interest or passion. So Tia. Thank you for your time. You know, I love you. I call you boss bay because you are amazing. And I just want to make you smile every time I say that, but thank you for making time for us. This is a huge blessing and I wish you the best and hopefully get a chance to have you back on again soon. Thank you so much, Dustin. It's been a joy. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcasts on Apple or Spotify and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.